Welcome to season three, episode two of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. Uh, my name is Ami Joseph. I'm the sector head for technology at Hedgeye. I'm joined today by Andrew Friedman, sector head for communications at Hedgeye. And this podcast, Unscripted Equity Curiosity, is where Andrew and I and Felix get together. Uh, sometimes we host uh, someone from the outside or someone from one of the other sector heads at Hedgeye. Um, but a lot of times we hash out things that we're working on behind the scenes uh, research that goes into the making of our research. So it's not usually not the pointed conclusion of long or short a single stock. It's usually something to do either with process or macro or one of the uh, one of the layers of research that uh, on which the rest of our research stand. And sometimes it's cutting floor research. It's about stocks that we don't write about, but that we read a lot about in, in the process of creating our research. So welcome today and thank you for joining us. Today's uh, podcast actually is inspired by something um, one of our listeners posted off of our last podcast, which was uh, that Andrew and I, um, you know, as people who've been through cycles before, as people who've studied markets before and companies, um, there, most of what we do, well, most of what Andrew and I do is to look, you know, get along the good ones and, and short the bad ones, right? Like that kind of thing. However, there are also cyclical inflections where even good companies are shorts and there are cyclical inflections where bad companies are long. So, I mean, they're usually just trades and they're not, you know, I don't, I don't, those aren't, you know, you can, you can, you can take a, you can take a clipping there where you, where you want, but most of the time you'll take your clipping and as you're celebrating, it'll go right back down or, or you'll realize that if you had gotten long something else at the time that is a winner, that was a little more expensive, maybe, and a little bit more high quality, you'd have something that you can keep in your portfolio forever. However, so anyway, with all that in mind, Andrew and I spent the last podcast, uh, season three, episode one, looking for, uh, it was basically key takeaways off of Keith's macro themes call for uh, 1Q23. And one of the things that he highlighted was gold. We talked about that a little bit and other areas of stocks that have other areas, thematic areas macro wise that could have impact on our sector, including his looking more for a positive inflection in the back half of this year, macro data. And so we talked about what areas of our stuff that's so burned out and bombed out that um, kind of like off of all those themes could be interesting to, to go and do research on um, usually either heavily shorted stocks or like high, I talked about one that was very, very high net cash to cap that that is a joke of a company, but <laughs> it's, it's, if it's, if it's, you know, 80% cash and, and they may have better tailwinds going forward, et cetera, then something to look at. Um, and one of our listeners uh, wisely uh, point, uh, pointed out, he said, um, you guys sound like you have too much FOMO about uh, fear of missing out of, of missing out on a trough. And so uh, in honor of that uh, wise listener and trying to sort of learn from that moment, we're going to actually reverse uh, the subject matter today. And we're just going to talk about how bad can it get? And we talked about this, I think, once like a year ago, and, and it was a, a really bearish conversation. But we're going to revisit that today. And take a fresh look at how bad can it get in our sector? What, like, and you can take, Andrew, you're going to start off and you could take this in any way you want. It could be valuation. It could be fundamentals. Hopefully it'll be both. It could be consolidation. It could be mergers. It could be bankruptcies. Maybe that's the best place to start is bankruptcies. Um, 
And where do you think like the, oh shit, uh, interest rates have just gone from, you know, for for companies, for corporates from 2% to 9% and finance and they're heavily indebted and uh, if fundamentals don't cyclically improve, this this company's going to have to file or something like that. Maybe that's a place to start if there are any, but it doesn't have to be that just that's kind of like a, a wild starting point. Yeah, I mean, look, it, how bad can you get? I mean, it can always get bad. Um, it's uh, it's been pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, especially the last couple months. Uh, November Wait, is it is it is it bad or is it like decelerating? Bad and decelerating uh, are two very different things. Well, I mean, decelerating is a prerequisite of bad. Right. So then your question really is just how is the magnitude and the magnitude is always the toughest to figure out. Right. Because if you're slowing a couple points versus slowing 30 percent, you know, that's a problem. Um, And, you know, I I think the jury like will find out this earnings season just how bad it is based off of my analysis and the things that I look at. Uh, it does appear that, um, you know, in pockets of my sector, um, especially that are more advertising sensitive, that are very brand driven in terms of their spending, uh, it looks like it's as bad as we like. It, we're seeing trends that are very similar to what happened in the last cycle going into COVID. Um, now, obviously, it's completely like, you know, the factors driving it are a little bit different, a lot different. Um, but in terms of budgets just getting cut and people pulling back on spend, yeah, it's that type of demand destruction, that accelerating decline um, that is happening. And the thing is that, um, at least specifically related to the brand advertising space, because when I, and I'm focusing on that so much because A, it's really important, but B, it tends to be the most cyclical, right? Because it has the less, direct return attached to it from an advertiser standpoint. And so it's the most discretionary part of the budget that you can cut and justify. Um, So it has a higher beta to it. Um, And typically Q4 is pretty strong from a brand advertising standpoint. Um, And usually you see Q4 that's, you know, 20, 30, 40% higher sequentially seasonally, right? Compared to Q3. And, you know, going into October, it was looked like it was pacing this way, but then it looks like it got worse November through December. Uh, and that as the quarter progressed, uh, it, people didn't um, people didn't decide to increase budgets. They decided to continue to ratchet down. And so um, it looks like uh, Q4 is going to be flat compared to Q3, right? If not down. Um, and that's a, that's a, I, I, I've gone through a lot of data. I got to go back further, but I don't think we've ever seen a Q4 period uh, if, in, in recent time, in the recent period, like last like 10 years where uh, Q4 was actually flat or down compared to Q3. Um, and so for context, it, is this an area where like people make their year on Q4? Is this an area that like, Thirty-five percent of your year of of revenue for the year is it like Q Q four is thirty-five percent? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, depends on the company, but it's like, yeah, it's like thirty-five 
percent, forty percent. So then big- you make your year because you're you you run your cost structure at the twenty to twenty five percent quarterly run rate, and mm-hmm. then thirty five percent is your profits for the year. I know that gets amortized across. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, like, just like maybe they like to take the brand advertising component and just make it a little bit for people that are some just keep it simple. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, imagine if you were like a retailer, right? And, you know, you're, you're relying on Black Friday, Cyber Monday, like the holiday period to drive most of your sales, right? And you bank on that all year long. Um, It's a seasonal pattern. And then all of a sudden, one year, it just doesn't happen. That's, you know, it's a problem. And so, it's not just a, it's not just like tough comps, right? It's not just like, Hey, the prior year was really strong. Um, and so we still had a seasonal lift. It wasn't as strong, but so we slowed, right? This is like full on demand destruction. Um, that is, uh, very seasonally unusual. And so then the question just becomes, do you annualize that seasonal pattern into 23, right? Like, did we just take another step down? Um, and so Q1 is typically down, you know, 25 to 35% compared to Q4. It does the fact that Q4 uh, was flat when it's usually up 30%, right? Does that mean that we're actually, Q1 is going to be like flat compared to Q4 because Q4 didn't have the lift? Or does it mean that we're actually going to see another like 30% decline seasonally off the Q4 level, which because the Q4 level is actually that new steady state, right? Annualized rate of spend that we just, downshifted to and so no, i would say by the way the latter of those two options if you have q1 down a ton oh definitely. Now, now we're talking about like you know how bad can it get if, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. if it's flat that means your your year over year already starts to improve in q1 100 percent, exactly right and so so as bad as it can get is basically we see more budget rounds of budget cuts because Q4 underperformed, people getting people are laying off, budgets are coming under pressure. And so, you know, we're going to see another 30% drop off here, Q1 compared to Q4. Um, and then, you know, in theory, um, you know, and then if that's the case, when these companies report and give guidance, you know, estimates need to get slashed by another 20% across the board. And then, you know, and, and then maybe Q1 is like the trough by which you start to grow seasonally from, right? Like, so like your budget just got reset back to a post-COVID normal level of spend that you've just been rationing down. And now this is the big cut. And so, you know, it's just, and, and, because, and because it's reactive, you know, people react to demand, um, you know, they don't. People aren't cutting, cutting, they don't cut budgets in anticipation of a fall off in demand. That's just not how decisions get made. And that's never is. It's always reactionary, which is why usually when you see the worst of it and how bad it can get, how bad can it get is typically just like when it's as good as it can get, when it's as bad as it can get uh, is usually the close to the end, right? It's like your peak of just awfulness. Um and so that's on the brand side. And so I'm really interested to see how that trends. Um, I think, you know, what could compound and snowball this thing in a big way is if we actually see the unemployment rate uh, skyrocket, um, you know, not just increase modestly, but like actually see big increase in, in joblessness um, as a result of the Fed over tightening. Um, everything that Keith and the macro team have talked about with respect to the wealth effect and the housing market demand, 
Um, if we actually start to see, um, you know, not just slowing of consumer demand, right, and consumer spend being reallocated, right? So the last, call it 12 months, have been we've been in this period where uh, we've basically gone back to 2019, like pre-COVID levels of like consumer spending patterns, shifting uh, bad debt expense, all that stuff. Um, now the question becomes, you know, we just downshifted back to, to pre-COVID. Um, do we stay here, right? Because this is like some level of new normal normalcy um, before we kind of fall off a cliff or do we just continue to fall off a cliff? And does the consumer retrench in a mat big way, right? Because like classic cycle, like this is just textbook cycle stuff, um, right? Is that uh, the savings, consumer savings rate in a contraction goes up, right? Um, and spending goes down. Well, the savings rate, you can go look through the macro decks, macro slide decks, is at an all-time low. It's at like two, it's at, it's a record lows. And that's because of a function of just the cash balance and stuff like that. But the worst case scenario from here is that, yeah, budget just got cut, but now the cons- that now we're seeing rising joblessness that the Fed can't control because there's reflexivity um, that compounds, which results in the consumer pulling back more aggressively, which means that the savings rate drop goes up and consumer spending goes down. And then all of a sudden you're seeing re- like even more demand destruction, which causes budgets to get cut again. Uh, and then you know, the little pocket of strength and direct response advertising that we've seen in December, that's kind of seemed to continue a little bit in this into the year, which by the way, it looks like that's predominantly just, you know, we'll see how sustainable it is, but I mean, I know you flagged this too, like, cause e-commerce pricing has normalized, right? Like we've gone back to deflationary, which has been positive for, you know, what looks like for positive for real consumption, uh, in some pockets of like e-commerce. So I've seen that flow through, but then, you know, so like, and that's typically, by the way, it's typically what you see. Like we saw this in 2020 is that like brand gets hosed. It's brand is like 40 to 50 can be 40 to 50, 60% of budgets. So when brand gets hosed, CPMs come down when CPMs come down, and this all happens after a period where direct response was underperforming. So then brand gets torpedoed. It gets more efficient and cheaper to spend on these platforms. And so then direct response advertisers start to see a better return, right? Because it's cheaper. So they start ramping budgets. So then you see a pretty significant mix shift towards performance marketing. Um, and right as brands getting walloped. And then that typically is a little bit durable because, you know, uh, that, you know, that trend's durable and then brand is slower to recover, but then that's how the cycle works for digital advertising. Um, you know, the risk is that, like I just mentioned, like if the consumer just completely stops spending and turns it off very rapidly, um, then not only is brand down, but then this little bump in direct response proves fleeting that starts tanking and then probably brand budgets get cut even more. I would say that. um, Okay. So first of all, let me, let me give you a data point, which is that the U S 
census uh, reported yesterday morning, no, uh, sorry, two days ago, uh, Wednesday morning, um, monthly retail sales and monthly uh, non-store retail sales, and um, which is like a proxy for e-commerce. And it was a lot better than what we were like modeling. Um, and it looks like the last three months, October, November, December, held up actually, we're good. Um, now I know Brian McGough, uh, was, uh, for those listening sector head of uh, Hedgehog Retail, talked about how consumers always spend, they always, <laughs> they always show up um, until he thought by February, the, you know, uh, the personal savings rate would be zero or negative. And, and at that point, the consumer really is tapped and they're, you know, that's why 2023 is going to suck. Um, but so, so, you know, TBD on what happens next with this data, but the data through year end was actually okay. So the question is, do the brands cut? So I, I do think there was some level of anticipation by the brands in terms of their advertising, because the data on e-commerce revenue was actually okay for Q4, um, even though they didn't spend in Q4. So I think there's some, some level of anticipation there. Um, in terms of, what happens next? I, I don't, I don't want to make predictions about the consumer because it's out of my area of expertise. So I don't want to like, you know, I, I, I probably rely on Steiner and, and on, and on um, Keith and on, and on Brian McGaugh for this, for what happens next over the next six months. And I think their views are pretty dire. I do. Yeah. Think and by own- the way, just, to, I just want to be very clear for the avoidance of any doubt for anyone listening to this, right. Ami and I are just having a conversation we're game theory. It's like game theory, right? Yeah. We're just talking through different what scenarios. Ifs. Exactly. What ifs? We're not saying that this is definitively going to happen a hundred percent. I personally do not think in absolutes. I do not. I think that's the way to blow yourself up in everything, life and investing. I think about it in terms of probabilities, a Bayesian process in terms of how we're tracking things. So I just want to make sure that anyone's listening, like if we're talking about recovery, like the most bullish thing ever or the most bearish thing ever, right? It's all because as analysts, we just have to always think about different scenarios and then you hang probabilities, right? right. Based on the data and how we're tracking on those different scenarios. And then you make decisions accordingly. So and for, just, me, and I, and, yeah. and for me and Andrew talking these things out, has always been helpful. And we were doing this before we started the podcast. Actually, one of the reasons we started the podcast was we were talking every couple of weeks with Felix, the three of us would get on and need to talk about our little sort of micro businesses, you know, customers, not customers, new new ideas, not, not new ideas and testing ideas against each other. But a lot of times we were testing ideas against each other and testing assumptions against each other. And it was this kind of thing. So that's why we sort of turned it into the podcast. Um, and invited everybody in to join us with this. Anyway, um, yeah, but 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 Ami, like, what about tech? Like, what's like the worst case scenario that you see um, in software and semis? Maybe that's like the the right. Yeah. I'll tell you. Okay, that's that's great. I'm happy you included semis as well. Um, okay, so let me get there. I, I want to respond to also like one macro point that you mentioned first before I go there. Yeah, sure. Um, and then, and then I'll, I'll go to the worst case. Okay. So yep. the, um, you mentioned an increase in joblessness and like, I guess what I would say is 
you know, and some of you uh, who are listeners know this because, you know, I think I, I was either on Twitter with some of you or even an email directly with some of you or customers um, at the time where there was such a massive uh, manpower shortage, labor shortage, and, and people were talking, talking about the impossibility of hiring and so difficult to hire. And I was like, you know, I was like, fade this, man. This is the, you're going the other direction. I think when I, when I think about where we're going, I, I hope it isn't exactly the inverse in the sense that we're going to have 20% unemployment. I think it's more like, um, like almost like a, a long, uh, duration malaise where um, there are, generally speaking, no new jobs on a net basis, on an annualized basis, right? There'll be some hires and some fires and some companies shutting down and whatever it is. And, and the workforce, as we know, grows. So there, that is how I, I see us reaching this pressure uh, where probably the U.S. government is going to have to uh, do programs to put people to work in some sense. I mean, hopefully it's not picks and shovels. It's something a little bit uh, more with longevity and investment. But, it, you know, but I do think that I to echo Andrew's point with that, I do think that cycles balance. And unfortunately, we're headed for I think it's going to be more in the shape of a long-term balancing as opposed to like a short, sharp yeah. crack the way, you know, to sort of like inverse what we just had. Um, right, which so is, just, which is, which by the way is, is frustrating, right? Because in so many ways, right. It'd be nice if we could just like have a catalyst, like as terrible as it would be to just like rip the bandaid off. So we could just yeah get to the other side, like, yeah. you know, and like, look, tech is like, tech is the number one, like, yeah, our spaces, I mean, like are the number one getting with the job cuts because I mean, but why? Well, let's see. They were the first to like, they were the first in, right. When we think about the pandemic, right. And now they're the, they were the first out. Are my, are my, do I have that backwards? Either way, yeah. you get the point, right? Like, so now, so now the question becomes like, okay, they're cutting, but like the world, the economy is not just Google and Microsoft. Like as much as it felt that way for during the pandemic, right? Like it, they're not the majority of you know job creation, and so you know when I look at advertising spend by industry, like you know you have travel, you just have like you know different parts of the economy with different types of exposures that we're covering at different places in time, and so that's to your point, Ami, of it being slower. I think that's going to be a big factor as well, right? Where like you know if you're like a live nation, for example you know, like was still crushing it this time last year, you know, through 2023. Yeah. So anyway, well, but let's, yeah, we don't let's, have to go there. No, no, that's a great point. I want to separate between the two different cycles embedded in this, in, in our comments right now. Okay. So Andrew was just talking about um, the accelerated sort of two-year pandemic cycle from the pandemic lows to the post-pandemic highs and now, you know, kind of like fading that and comping it. And so in that sense, yes, I would say that, the areas of the world of the economy that were underutilized and underdiscovered and underspent and undercapitalized during the 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 the, the uh, uh, pandemic, whether it's energy or whether it's hotels and restaurants and travel and things like that, and those areas that were underspent probably are like worth looking at, which is why actually I, uh, on a, Andrew and I have invited um, one of the sector heads at Hedgeye to come and speak on this podcast in a few weeks. 
to talk about his area because that's one of the areas that kind of like you know so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit more into the weeds there to understand it and understand those those tailwinds and headwinds uh from macro versus recovery kind of like recovery post but but i but when i'm thinking about when andrew says to me like worst case scenarios for software and semis I'm actually thinking more about the uh, the combination of the fact that I, I actually think of this pandemic cycle as the cherry on top or as the, 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 the blowing off of the top of this amazing, the, the beta period of like an alpha cycle. Like we had a great cycle from the lows were 2011, 2012. And since then, it's been almost entirely good with the exception of a few months here and there. Maybe the back half of 19 was slowing because of the tightening of the Fed and so on and so forth. But like, you know, there were in, in 16, there was a kind of like before, uh, before the election, there was a, a slowing, but like, aside from like pockets, it was a very, very long, long recovery, a uh, good economic <laughs> cycle. And then we had the accelerant on top. So when I think about worst case scenarios for software and semis, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about right now. First of all, in semis, like immediate this morning, like, I don't understand why analog semis aren't a short, all of them, because they are tied to auto SAR. They are tied into EV, uh, electric vehicle transformation into autos, and they're tied into industrial spending and industrial unit volumes and industrial growth. And it's like, dude, that's not going to be good that those areas, we already know they've already like completely, you know, slowed. Um, part of why this analog semis have held up is because uh, they, uh, the, the lagging supply chain tightness from the, from the pandemic has sort of resisted a lot of these effects because companies who built up inventory, the supply chain who built up inventory to protect themselves against shortage are loath to turn around and hit the sell button so quickly on inventory. They're loath to give up that strategic advantage so quickly, but they will over time as they are carrying, that burns cash, carrying inventory burns cash. So I think that that is an area where I would worry about a couple quarter or two, three quarter of like, you know, sort of cyclical stoppage in play. Um, so that's kind of one thought process. The other thought process is something I've talked about here uh, yeah, uh, uh, on the positive side, but now I'm going to talk about it on the negative side, is on the semi-cap side and all of the manufacturing, There's there's been a big tailwind of investment on um, the idea of doubling up the supply chain. So like adding... Um, getting out of China, we're going to add India now, you know, supply chain, we're going to add Malaysia more in Malaysia, we're going to build up the United States, it's going to have front end wafers. And all of that excitement has meant that the semi-cap players and, and also now the EMS companies have all been great uh, or better, better than, have performed better than fundamentals in the last year. And I think that that's interesting. Um, I think that tailwind is interesting, but we hosted uh, a U.S.-China expert in-house uh, a few weeks ago, right at the end of 2022. And his expertise and his view was that the United States has basically created like a ring fence around China, diplomatically, economically, politically, militarily even, um, to just sort of remind China to play nice. And I think that there's a great giant bluff happening Mm -hmm. uh, where kind of you've got an apple to move its supply chain out of China and so on and so forth and all these things. And like, if you think about China's position, they aren't ready for their, to, they aren't ready to no longer be the manufacturing center of the world. 
if the manufacturing center of the world, if that gravity actually shifts, and specifically to India, who is their regional and local rival and, and, and most uh, representative close to them in terms of the demographics and so on and so forth and potential for the future, um, if, if they start to lose that uh, manufacturing con- economy, China will blink. They, they, they don't have a choice. They will go into a death spiral of economy if they really are going to have a disinvestment period. And they know it. So if all of this is just a bluff to get whatever behind the scenes thing is going that they needed to get and remind China not to invade Taiwan or whatever it is, then I, I think all of this might be a bluff. And then all of this equity uh, area of investment on semi-cap and, and, and doubling up the supply chain and, and even some of the onshoring EMS names is going to end up being a bubble and, uh, and a short. So I think that, that to me is sort of like a, and, and the signal, by the way, for me that I'm going to look for is hearing that, let's say Samsung new latest fab in Texas is really just ramping some like LSI microcontroller that's two generations old. And it's going to be like a 70% underutilized fab or the TSMC is pushing out their three nanometer Arizona uh, and is going to do one nanometer there. And it's going to do three nanometer in Sinshu science park in Taiwan. And it's like, that those things will be the sign that it was just a bluff and that China has folded on whatever thing that they were supposed to fold on behind the scenes. So all of that could end up t- being a terrible thing. So that's semis and semi cap. Let's talk about software for a second. I'd say the bull thing on software is just that like, Andrew, it's not even your generation. It's the generation coming up behind you. It's like Yosef and Sean Jenkins and those guys or whatever. They are much more native on software. I know you yourself are, are sort of technophilic and you are. I'm not that much older than them, Ami. What's that? <laughs> so I'm not that much older than they you're, are. I mean, you're in between me and you. I mean, yeah, um, no, no. I'm 47. What are you, 35? 33. 30, okay. All right. So you're about, yeah, that's right. So yeah, they're, they're in there. T- 20s or like you know just crossing yeah like uh, like five years yeah okay fine so yeah i know i'm just joking around yeah yeah yeah. no it's a a joke accepted um so so the uh yeah my kids call me old man all the time anyway so so um that generation is growing up much more software centric and much more using software, leaning on software to automate processes and to be faster and smarter and, uh, and better with their work. And, and that's the bull case on software is that a lot of the software growth is going to stick around because this generation needs it, wants it, relies on it. I would say the negative though, is if you think about the enterprise technology budgets of the top global 6,000 companies, which really is what drives most of the backlog creation for software, Um, really more than 50% of of software backlog creation, and obviously key to growth at this point, uh, is from those companies. It's been exciting for the last decade, because you've got to like transition to the cloud and all everything you know around that, uh, uh, all the security holes that come up, all the, the storage transitions and networking transitions and uh, DevOps and different ways of work that are enabled and so on and so forth and multi-cloud. But like, uh, on, the, on there there also are long like ten year periods of time where those budgets are really boring. Like yeah. the changes they're making are they're looking to save money. So the new software they're buying is like something that saves them money. Uh, 
like deduplication was a big thing in like, I think 2003, four, five virtualization was a big thing because again, it was like a big money saver. Like those are money savers. So they got investment and those are the hot areas of software that where the stocks were expensive and high growth, but like they were, those were pockets, everything else in enterprise tech sort of sucked. And I think that that's where you, you kind of have to, the bear case is that we're going into boring land in enterprise software spending. And boring means much lower multiples, much slower growth. I should say that reverse, right? And slower growth, much lower multiples. It's much more about M&A, right? Because if you have a position, if you're landed with a position, now you need some shit to sell because you're only, you can only grow your, your contract extensions five to 7% a year, but you want to be a 15 to 25% revenue company. So you got to make acquisitions. You're making acquisitions, but they are, they're not bubble acquisitions. They are, they're regular period acquisitions where you're essentially like doing it for efficiency, for accretion to the bottom line, for upsell value. The, the multiple on those companies is more like, yeah, okay. So they're only organically growing, you know, high single digit, low double digit, you know, double, double, you know, 20%, maybe inorganic growth with, with inorganic baked in. And, but you're trying to grow your free cash flow in that 15% range, right? Like, so better than organic, um, and so those are, there's a multiple for that. It's Garpy. Uh, Garpy in tech uh, is ugly. Uh, it doesn't favor investing in like go-go growth. It doesn't favor investing in blue sky. It's, it's difficult. And even worse is that the, the actual handful of blue sky names who are really do have huge opportunities, uh, those you, you don't want to buy any because they're expensive. They're always going to be expensive because they're scarce. Uh, the, you know, the HashiCorps of the world, right? It's like they have like a multi-year tail and they've got a seven-year growth rate out of them. That's going to be great up and down, but sure. But like, it's going to, they have layers and layers and layers of growth. that's going to last them a very long time. Like, okay, but Hashi is going to be expensive because of that relative to whatever number it's putting up. Um, so that's kind of like a worst case scenario situation that I think we're going towards. And we really are going towards that further and further and further. I think what I tried to express last time is we're in this place where we're hitting easy comps on these names where a lot of these companies got the memo on uh, generating additional, being OPEX disciplined and generating a lot of excess free cash flow. There's a bubble in institutional investors uh, and retail investors looking for gap profits and uh, uh, meaning excluding stock-based comp and also free cash flow adding without stock-based comp helping. And I think that's a bubble uh, in itself that will extinguish because the real growth companies will be growth companies and so on and so forth. So there's sort of like almost like the, 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 the game of uh, the mechanics of maybe like a trade uh, that echoes Keith's long gold position because you're going to, you have these companies that are suddenly like heavy cash balance sheets that are going to fill up with more, a lot of free, pointing a lot, the arrow towards a lot of free cash flow is going to fill up a lot of free cash flow and they've been bombed out and they're cheap and they're still growing very fast. So that's kind of like more, more like a, a moment in time. But I think the worst case scenario is that sort of like almost like a gradual, like this is going to be less and less relevant. Now, AI has a chance, has a possibility to trigger a wider investment world that that makes these things that make you know kind of creates a cycle uh but ai also has the potential to be the kind of thing we look back in a year's time and be like hey remember all that when everyone was talking about that that went away fast you know because it is uh 
it's a little, it's still such early. The, you know what? The efficiency gains though, the productivity piece is something that's just like so fascinating of it, right? Like, like the potential and we, and, and you brought this up and we've chatted about it, about, uh, you know, soft programming side, right? Like this and chat GBT, right? Like if that, like the potential for like AI just to actually take someone's productivity and increase it by 10, 15, 20% in aggregate is massive, right? Um, and it's uh, the world is struggling right now with productivity, right? Because they hired too many people through COVID. And uh, I'm not saying that's like, you know, AI is like the solution, but it's something that's just like, I think about it from what we do, right? Like, man, if like all of a sudden, instead of having to like, you know, code, like learn Python and do all this advanced coding and do it on like other software platforms or types of notebooks. And instead, like actually Microsoft can put this into natively into Excel. Right. And now I can actually like in simple, simple language, explain what I want to do and have it run advanced queries and analytics, something like in, in a very efficient way. Yeah. Or even if it means that like, you know, instead of trying to like, you know, configure data, right. Like, analyze larger data sets and something that you would typically either need SQL for or Python to do that, that would probably either require you to learn uh, SQL, uh, either of those coding, um, you know, um, you know, processes, or you would have to hire a developer for if all of a sudden, like something that would take me like 15 hours to do in Excel or like even two hours of my Excel computer time to process. Right. Um, if all of a sudden now because of AI and that ability, it's like, 30 minutes or 10 minutes like that's pretty cool yes however what i'll say is that because that ai is available to everyone and so you're not the only one owning the tool in the beginning there's some kind of efficiency gain which is good in automation however what it also means and this is why i'm not sure like how the whole ai thing is going to today i would still call ai a destructive theme destructive to equity value not uh additive today and the reason why i would say that is because all those things you can automate and do automate by ai the value of those things goes down tremendously the value of what things like for example let's say you use ai to generate a weekly note off of that it's going to read your inbox all the emails you've sent to institutional investors collect you know, all those, the great insight nuggets that are in your emails going to generate an amazing weekend note for you. And all you have to do is look at the rough draft and hit send. Like the, that's, that's very powerful and interesting, right? But the today, but I would say very quickly, the things that are in that category of almost like automated productivity, the incremental value that those generate um, oh, yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Squashed because everyone yeah. has the same, has access to that tool. And so what it means is that your the create human creativity above AI becomes more important and is actually the thing that is going to um, complete I completely like yeah, I, I I completely hear what you're saying. Basically like it's like it's like I mean it's the same concept, right? Like almost like Look, like where we are today, 
right? Like we have to be creative. Like you and I have both seen like new data sets, things quickly become commoditized. Yeah. Right. And like they're shiny and new and interesting for like six to 12 months. And then because of that, like that arbitrage, that value just gets completely captured because then everyone on the buy side and the sell side, all of a sudden are doing the same exact thing. And, and so then you always have to be like fighting and iterating, looking for the next thing. So, you know, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that makes sense. I think that's just, you know, but that's like advancement, right? Like that's just. Like think about, like even just thinking about the example I just gave you about your inbox. Yeah. Let's say a large client, right? Think about a, a large hedge fund client is applying that same approach and they're examining everyone's inboxes. They're pulling amazing nuggets from 150 sell side analysts emailing and other portfolio managers from outside of their firm or or other analysts, they're pulling nuggets from those emails to their vast, you know, hundreds of people who work for them, whatever it is. And putting that, putting out a weekly, like the best things we learned as a group this week, in which case you're one little using AI and your one little email that comes out, Andrew's insights is, you know, kind of like immediately, you know what I'm trying to say? Like the value to create value in an AI world becomes harder, I think. And I think that that's where the, one of the reasons why I still see AI will take a lot of what we do today that is valuable and, and actually commoditize it. And, and, and that's, and that's good for the world in the long run, but it's, it's a struggle. It's going to push all of us uh, and further deeper into that. Uh, creative well, I, you know what it is? I think it's a, it's a huge risk for the, for anyone that has outside exposure personally or professionally to any of the tasks or things that are automated, right? Like that is like, and you've talked about this too. Like, it's like, if you're a programmer, right? Like, let's say like all you do is program, like there's obviously an element of creativity there. Right. But like, you have to also think like, there's pockets of that that are just going to be completely commoditized. Absolutely. Like wiped out commoditized. Absolutely. And like, where has been the biggest area of investment, like both in terms of salaries, compensation, and also skills and like focus. So like, and look, the value, in my opinion, like the creator, the person that like thinks of something, right. How the, the person that's adept at, uh, directing and thinking through problems and using tools to, to create value. Like, yeah, they're always going to be there. Right. And that's why like, you know, the cr- human elements always going to be like really important um, because that's how value is created, but the behind the scene, it's going to be probably commoditized to some extent. So anyway, I, we kind of totally got off topic. It's a fun, it's been, it's a, <laughs> it's a fun conversation. Um, but maybe, maybe that's part of as bad as it. How bad could it get? Well, I mean, I don't know. Well, I guess if if all if like if thirty percent of programmers just become irrelevant, right, or like commoditized, and therefore you're not paying them, they're not worth like five hundred thousand dollars a year. They're only worth a hundred, you know. Then that's like really bullish, okay. right? So this comes back to our joblessness thing, which is that there are uh, areas that AI will. Oh, gradually, not like tomorrow morning, but gradually over the next five years or decade will gradually erode the value that society gets from those uh, participants uh, broadly. There'll be a, 
it will force kind of call it 25 or 30% of the, that existing group to move, to turn, to turn the dial three more, three more times instead in the next two years, instead of once. And to get to that creative layer where, you know, there is still a very big difference between, you know, goods. First of all, there's a big difference today in the world between people who write really companies who produce really good software and companies who do not. Um, and uh, a lot of that has to do with the testing process. A lot of that has to do with architecture and the feedback loop and so on and so forth, but um, and debugging. Uh, but I, I think that uh, AI will help that those processes, you know, accelerate, but I do think there's always, there's still going to be a, a, that premium layer of good software. And I think that that, well, I think that will still retain value, but I do think that there will be uh, these sections of the economy that come under pressure. It's not just AI, but overall over the next decade in the search for productivity uh, in the search for efficiency gains. And I do think that is going, that is a, a negative headwind for employment over the next decade that will make it harder and harder. And I think that if we had forward-looking politicians, which I think, uh, uh, again, not making a, a, a comment about this administration versus the last or, or the one before that. I don't really, I just, my, what I've noticed is from an economic perspective, uh, most politicians in the last 40 years in my life have just kicked the hard questions, the can down the, down the curb, right? They just kick it ahead and mm. let the next politician deal with it because nobody wants to make hard decisions. And in that, in which case, we're not going to have any really good solutions for attacking this problem and investment from the U.S. government to open up new areas of economic growth uh, that are sustaining and, and, and lead us in other ways. And it's going to have to be from the private sector, which is great, except that the private sector investment areas are like when you start a company, a startup, some new disruptive startup starts with like, I don't know, one to five humans, not 5,000. It gets to 5,000 after 10 to 15 years, maybe, uh, or maybe not, maybe it gets only to 500 in some cases when they're really efficient, but like, uh, so the, the soaking up, uh, excess employment and, uh, and, and really creating long-term, uh, uh, job trends, uh, from the private sector takes a very long time to soak up that, uh, capacity. Uh, whereas the U S government is the only one who can really do it in a, over a five-year period, let's say or a four-year period of time, but no one really has that foresight and, and thought process. Um, Okay, that ties it back to macro, uh, and and I hope that's. I mean, I know that's a dreary point, but hey, man, you said uh, how bad we we said we'd go with how bad can it get, and that's pretty much how how bad it can get. Um, uh, Andrew, I don't know if there's one or two last things you want to mention. No, I mean, I think that's it. It's just um, you know, for humanity's sake, hopefully it's uh, doesn't get there, but you know, there's always a path to all eventual outcomes, right? It's just. A matter of what happens between you know today, tomorrow, the next day, the following day, um, and just being ready for all eventual outcomes and being mentally flexible. That's right. Agree with all of that. Uh, that's a great place to end. Um, this has been season three, episode two. Our next two episodes, uh, knock on wood, God willing, etc., will be will be hosting. Um, and so stay tuned for uh, the speakers. One of them will be a sector head from Head Drive, but there's another speaker from the outside who's going to join us uh, on the next podcast. Thanks for tuning in. 
Have a great weekend and we'll see you next time. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.